Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John. And this morning, we are going to begin gazing at one of the most beautiful, profound mountain peaks in God's revelation. John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ. And I thought as we begin this study, which will take us a number of weeks to get through, I thought it would be appropriate if we read the entire prayer so you can hear it in all of its power and all of its glory. And so just take your Bibles and follow along with me as I read John 17, verses 1 through 26. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, and all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I've given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them." I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled." But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, and they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world." 
O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Father, we can't help but get a sense that we're treading on holy ground when we read this magnificent text of Scripture. Lord, we could spend the rest of our lives in John 17 and never plumb the depths of all that is here because we know that we're given a window into heaven and the intimate communion and fellowship that is shared between the Godhead, something that is beyond our imagination, beyond our comprehension. But we thank you for giving us your spirit who illuminates our minds to understand what we can here on earth. Even though it's limited, Father, we'll take whatever you'll give us today. So I pray, Lord, that as we begin wading into this deep end, one of the deepest parts of your word, that you would grant us grace, that we would not drown and be overwhelmed, but we would come away with some great truths that will encourage our souls and and, and better equip us, Lord, to live lives for your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, John Owen is considered by many to be the greatest Puritan theologian who ever lived. When he died, he was in the process of writing a book called Meditations on the Glories of Christ because he wanted to focus his final years on earth on the main reality of the universe, the glory of Christ. And this is what he wrote in that book. He said, the revelation of Christ deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them, what better preparation can there be for our future enjoyment of the glory of Christ in heaven than in a constant previous contemplation of that glory in the revelation that is made in the gospel of John? And so of all the places where We see the glory of Christ in Scripture. No other book in the Bible reveals Christ's glory more than the Gospel of John. And no other section in the Gospel of John reveals the glory of Christ more than John 17. And you may have noticed that the words glory or glorify or glorified are used eight times in this chapter, five times in the first five verses alone. And so this morning, we're going to begin meditating, as John Owen suggested, on the glory of Christ as we work our way through what is regarded by some to be the holy of holies of sacred scripture. This is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Gospels, and once again, we're indebted to the Apostle John for including this particular prayer in his gospel since none of the other gospel writers recorded it. And I find this interesting that... John's gospel doesn't include what is typically referred to as the Lord's Prayer. We, we find that in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, which was a model prayer that Jesus gave his disciples to follow when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. 
Rather than referring to that as the Lord's Prayer, I think it should really be called the Disciples' Prayer, that prayer in Matthew 6 and, 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 and uh, Luke 11, because it's something that the Lord Himself didn't pray. He wasn't praying. He was saying, when you pray, pray like this. He was giving them an example, a model to follow. So he, he didn't pray that prayer, and he couldn't pray that prayer. How does the, the Son of God pray, and Father, forgive us as we forgive others? He had nothing to be forgiven for. He never sinned. And so that really isn't the Lord's Prayer. It's better referred to as the disciples' prayer. I would suggest to you that John 17 is the real Lord's Prayer. Because it's something he did pray, and only he could pray. The disciples couldn't pray this. We can't pray this. Only the Son of God can pray this. I also find it interesting that John doesn't include a record of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. And so... The Gospel of John doesn't have the Lord's Prayer, as it's often referred to. It doesn't have the prayer in the garden. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John included what may be the most significant prayer that Jesus ever prayed as he poured out his heart to the Father in the hearing of his disciples just hours before he was arrested and crucified. I, th- I sort of thought it was funny that some scholars speculate how John came into possession of the words of this prayer. Some suggest that, that perhaps Jesus informed him later of its content after his resurrection, before his ascension. Uh, others suggest that, that after Christ ascended, um, he sent the Holy Spirit, and, and so via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John was able to write these things down. Obviously, we know he wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, but in my mind, the simplest solution is that Jesus prayed this prayer aloud in the upper room. Not only for the benefit of his, of his disciples who were there with him at that moment, but also for the benefit of all those who would become his disciples in the future. And so John heard this prayer with his own ears. And it is no wonder that throughout the history of the church, this epic prayer has inspired hundreds of sermons and thousands of written pages and, and impacted millions of lives across the ages and around the globe. Just for example, uh, the Puritan Thomas Manton preached 45 sermons on these 26 verses. I promise you I won't preach 45 sermons, okay? Just, just you know, maybe three or four, but 45 sermons on this chapter alone. Another Irish preacher, Marcus Rainsford, wrote a massive exposition of John 17 that totaled over 500 pages. It's a big old thick book that I've got in my library that somebody graciously gave me and knowing that I was getting, getting closer to John 17 and they, they knew I needed this resource. It was a tremendous gift. Listen to what some of the great preachers of the past and, and present said about John 17. Martin Luther, quote, this is truly beyond measure. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. Melanchthon, who was a contemporary of Luther, a fellow reformer, 
said this, quote, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered by the Son to God himself. It's said that John Knox, the Scottish reformer, had John 17 read to him every day during his final illness and in the very final moments of his life before he died. He asked that John 17 would be read. James Montgomery Boyce says this, quote, This prayer should be to us something of what the burning bush was to Moses. For here we hear God speaking, and we should put off our shoes and bow humbly, being about to tread on the most hallowed ground. Warren Wiersbe says this, It is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. And John MacArthur, from the beginning to end, Jesus' earthly ministry was marked by frequent times of prayer. But of all the prayers of Jesus, the one recorded here in the 17th chapter of John's gospel is the most profound and magnificent. Its words are plain, yet majestic, simple, yet mysterious. They plunge the reader into the unfathomable depths of the inner Trinitarian communication between the Father and the Son, and their scope encompasses the entire sweep of redemptive history from election to glorification, including the themes of regeneration, revelation, illumination, sanctification, and preservation. And then he says this, the veil is drawn back, and the reader is escorted by Jesus Christ into the Holy of Holies to the very throne of God. The question is, why has Jesus' prayer here in John 17 gained such lofty praise? Well, let me suggest a couple of reasons for you. First of all, in this chapter, we are given the inestimable privilege, that means big privilege, okay, huge privilege, of listening in on an intimate conversation between two members of the Godhead. The Father and the Son, as they discuss the outworking of their eternal plan of salvation. And if that wasn't huge enough, what makes this even more intriguing and breathtaking is that we are mentioned in the conversation. That we come up, our name comes up. They're talking about how we fit into their plan. I mean, talk about our ears burning. Are your ears burning this morning? They should be, because guess what? Your name came up in the upper room when Jesus prayed this high priestly prayer, when he was talking, when the son was talking about it, your name came up. Secondly, not only are we given the privilege of listening in on this intimate conversation between the father and the son, we're also given a preview or a peek, if you will, into Christ's present ministry at the right hand of God in heaven where he prays for, for his people. And while Jesus prayed this prayer when he was here on earth, there is a natural connection between this text and, and texts that refer to him as our great high priest who intercedes for us in prayer before the throne of God. For example, Romans 8, 34, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who, has, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And then, of course, when you think of the great high priestly ministry of Christ, you have to think of the book of Hebrews, 
another great mountain peak of revelation about the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that, we, so that he might become a merciful and faithful what? High priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he, was suffer- in that which he suffered, he was able to come, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Instead of saying, well, you know, I'm a little nervous going into the, the, the presence of God. I mean, I don't really, I'm kind of new there. I don't, I don't know anybody there. No, listen, if you're a Christian, you know somebody in there. You've got a friend. You've got an advocate. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who gives you access into the throne room of God. Hebrews 7.25, that, that, that Christ is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so after Jesus died and he rose again, he ascended back to heaven. We know that it says that the scripture says that he sat down at the right hand of God to symbolize that the work of redemption was completed. No other sacrifices were needed to atone for sin. That's what he meant when he said on the cross, it is what? Finished. And so in the Old Testament, the high priest was always on the move. He was always walking around. He was always uh, presenting the, the, the sacrifices. There was always a need to be interceding on behalf of the people and offering sacrifice. So the high priest never sat down. There was no chair in the Holy of Holies to sit down. Never had time. Never got around to it. But when Jesus entered the Holy of Holies in heaven, he sat down because it was finished. His work was done. But that doesn't mean that he stopped working. He stopped ministering on our behalf. Because as the risen and exalted Lamb of God, Jesus now serves as our advocate before the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Have you ever wondered what Jesus says to the Father about you? Or what it would be like to hear him praying for you? If you could just kind of sneak up to heaven and kind of listen in to the, to the, to the throne room and, and hear what he's saying about you, how he's praying for you? Well, I would submit to you that, that it wouldn't be much different than what he said and what he prayed here in John 17. That's why this beloved chapter is commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer. Listen to the words of Marcus Rainsford, that gentleman I mentioned, the Irish pastor who wrote a classic book entitled Our Lord Prays for His Own, which is regarded as the the finest work ever written on the high priestly prayer, that 500-page manuscript I told you about earlier. But listen to what he says, quote, Jesus left his most precious prayer with us as a specimen of the intercession which even now he carries on for us at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. It is Christ's prayer for his disciples throughout all time. 
In other words, he's still praying this prayer. I'm sure there's prayers that you pray over and over and over again, right? It's not like you just pray one prayer one time in your life. There's, there's certain prayers that you pray every day, right? Well, this is a prayer, if you will, that Jesus would pray every day for those of us that are his own. I know I find huge, you know, I, I'm, I'm greatly encouraged when, when people tell me that they're praying for me. Do you like that when people say, hey, I'm praying for you? When you know that people are praying for you. Man, I've had people, man, it's just so, it's obvious that people are praying for us. Man, I'm so encouraged that people in this church pray for me. We're going through this trial and, and I know we're being prayed for and that's making all the difference in the world. Doesn't that encourage you when you know people are praying for you? How much more encouraging should it be for us to know that we have a great and glorious high priest in heaven who is continuously praying for us. Listen, I pray for you, but you know what? I go to sleep every once in a while, like every day. I, I go to bed, right? And so I can't continuously pray for you. But guess what? Jesus never sleeps. He never slumbers. Guess what? You are always getting prayed for 24-7, 365 days a year by the Lord Jesus Christ. That should encourage our hearts, shouldn't it? This should spur us on in our, in our Christian lives, knowing that it's Christ's prayers on our behalf that enables us to be victorious, that enables us to be overcomers, like we learned last week. And if you were here last week, you remember that Jesus wrapped up the upper room discourse with a shout of victory in verse 33. This is John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And so it was a cry of victory. And I hope you noticed as we were reading through John 17 that the term world, last word in verse 16, I have overcome the world, that same word is used 19 times more in chapter 17. And so there's a clearly a connection between Jesus' prayer and all that he just got done saying in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. In fact, a lot of what he told them earlier that evening is repeated in this prayer. And so Jesus had said everything that he could say to prepare his disciples for what was about to happen in the hours and the, and the weeks and the months that lie ahead. He, he basically, his, his goal in the upper room discourse was to equip them. And so now all he had left to do was to pray for them. And his goal in this prayer, I believe, was to empower them, to enable them to do all that he just got done telling them they had to do. He says, okay, I've told you what you need to do. I've told you what's going to happen. I told you what you need to do, how you need to live your life. Now, Now let me pray for you, that God would empower you, that God would enable you to do these things. And ultimately, bottom line, he was entrusting his disciples to the Father. He knew he was leaving. He couldn't watch over them. He couldn't care for them any longer in a physical sense. And so he was entrusting them to the Father and said, Father, I've taken good care of them while I was here. And now they're in your hands. I'm entrusting them to you. It's almost as if after this climactic Statement, I have overcome the world. 
And Jesus said, let's close in prayer. Let's close in prayer. In other words, there's nothing more you could say after that. Uh, the only thing left to do is to pray. And so this prayer is, is really the crescendo uh, or, or the climax of the upper room discourse. One, one commentator said it this way. He said, uh, it is the seal of all he has said. It is the capstone of a presentation designed to steady the shaky disciples and ensure their imminent scattering would only be temporary. Jesus' final instruction primes them to expect what lies ahead, but Jesus' prayer empowers them to survive and rise above it. In the hour of Jesus' betrayal and death, it it was the prayer of chapter 17 that ensured the survival of his tiny band of faltering followers. And I would say that, that this prayer in John 17 is what ensures the survival of us. Because we are that band of faltering followers, are we not? And so through this prayer, Jesus was again entrusting his dear disciples and us for safekeeping into the loving arms of the Father. And the bottom line here is that he was, he was ready to go back home to heaven, and he prayed to the Father that his Father was, would be brought home safely to heaven as well. But with that background and introduction, we're going to begin looking at this prayer this morning, and it really can be broken up into three simple sections. Verses 1 through 5, we see Christ prays for himself. Uh, uh, verses 6 through 19, Christ prays for his disciples. And then in verses 20 to 26, Christ prays for all believers or the church. This morning, we're just going to look at that first section where Jesus prayed for himself, verses 1 through 5. Now, when it comes to prayer, I've always been taught and I've tried to teach others that we should always pray for others first and ourselves, what? Last. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus prayed for himself first and others second. Now, obviously, we know that that doesn't mean that Jesus was being self-absorbed by praying for himself first. He wasn't being selfish. In fact, it was the exact opposite. Just like everything else he ever said or did while he was here on this earth, he was consumed with the glory of his Father. His entire earthly life had been devoted to bringing glory to his Father, and his death would be no different. And the opening lines of, 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 of his prayer weren't about his glory as much as they were about the Father's glory. Notice what he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may what? Glorify you. So Jesus came to show the world God's glory, to show us what God is like. Listen to the very beginning of of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 14. You'll remember these key verses uh, in the introduction to John's Gospel. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And Christ is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that we behold the glory of God in the face of who? In the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So now in this prayer, back in John 17, he was asking his Father to glorify him so that he could glorify his Father even more than he already had by showing the world who God is in the fullest possible way. And what was the greatest demonstration of the glory of God in the history of the universe? What was it? The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he had in view here. That's what was about to occur in just a few hours. And there's no greater demonstration of God's character than the events that were about to take place. Now go back just to the beginning sentence there in John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said. This was a typical Jewish posture for prayer. We see this throughout the scriptures. Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Nebuchadnezzar said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4, 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Jesus, uh, this was not the first time He lifted His eyes towards heaven, uh, when He uh, transformed the five loaves and the two fish, He multiplied those, Mark 6, 41, He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, He blessed them. When he went to heal the, the man who was deaf in Mark seven thirty four, looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, be opened. And of course, here in John 11, if you remember verse 41, when he was raising Lazarus from the dead, it says, then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And so this was a typical posture of prayer. It's just, it, you know, you don't have to kneel down. You don't even have to close your eyes, right? Sometimes, um, according to Jesus, he, didn't, he, didn't, he just lifted his eyes towards the heavens. That would be an appropriate posture of prayer. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Praying with your eyes open, it's possible, right? Just, just, just look towards heaven, and you're acknowledging the direction of your prayer. And notice how he addressed God, he said, Father. He called God Father five other times in this prayer. And by now we've gotten used to hearing Jesus address God as as his Father. We've seen it from starting in chapter 5 all the way up to this point, John 17. And so we we read that and we're like, yeah, I don't know, what's the big deal, Father? Well, we need to Remember that this was shocking to the ears of the Jews in Jesus' day. You didn't call God Father. And you know the Jewish religious leaders considered it what? Blasphemous. 
for Jesus to call God his father and, and wanted to kill him for calling him father because he was making himself out to be God's son, which was tantamount to claiming to be God. This was in no way the customary address for God. Research shows that no one ever addressed God as father before Jesus. Now, he was, God was likened to a father by way of analogy in the Old Testament, but no Old Testament Jew would ever dare personally address God as their father. The Jewish people were taught that God was, was awesome, he was majestic, he was far off, he was behind a veil, he was unapproachable, he was a consuming fire. And so naturally, at first, this took the disciples some getting used to, since they, they had never heard anyone ever claim that kind of intimate access to the holy God of the universe. But this was just Jesus' way of expressing the, the close personal relationships you share, share with God the Father. This was just very natural to him. Hey, Dad. This is very natural. And th- that was this word. It, it wasn't the, the normal Greek word for father. This was the, 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 the Aramaic word, Abba, which was the way a, a, a small child would address their, their father in those days and say, hey, Daddy, Daddy. And every time Jesus prayed in the Gospels, he addressed God as Father with one exception. Do you remember what that was? When he was hanging on the cross, and he didn't say, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? What did he say? God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To emphasize that in that moment on the cross, when he was made sin for us, His relationship with the Father was momentarily separated. Something happened there. Their fellowship, that eternal fellowship was broken for that moment in time. He experienced separation from his Father. But notice he says, he said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. We've heard this before, haven't we? Jesus was referring to the time when God had sovereignly scheduled for him to be arrested and tried and crucified and resurrected. And early on in in Jesus' public ministry, when he was asked to manifest his power, like, hey, son, turn this water into wine, or or to present himself as the Messiah. Hey, bro, his disciple, his brothers, hey, bro, why don't you go to Jerusalem and show him you're the Messiah, do all a bunch of miracles, or, or when he was able to elude arrest. He was, they were ready to kill him, and he was able to sneak through the crowds and get away. It often said it was because his, what, hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. But at the same time, later on in his ministry, as the time of his death approached, he began to say that his hour had come. Chapter 12, verse 23, he mentioned it for the first time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. And then here in chapter 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. And so Jesus understood that he had finally arrived at that place where he would be able to fulfill that which God had promised before time began. 
And he was ready to face the cross with triumph and with great resolve. And he knew the cost would be immense, but the result would be glorious. It would be eternal. And so he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Again, he's looking ahead to his death on the cross and the resurrection and and the ascension and the exaltation at the right hand of God to follow. I mean, if Jesus had remained in the grave, everyone would have concluded what? He was a joke. He, he, he was another man. He, was, he wasn't who he said he was. But, but the fact that, 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 that God raised him from the dead and brought him back to heaven and exalted him to his right hand and gave him a name that is above every name, guess what? He glorified Jesus Christ and said, watch, I'm going to prove to you that he is my son, that he is not lying. He's telling the truth. And this is undeniable proof, and we're going to celebrate this next weekend, right? The resurrection, that Jesus is God's Son, and that His sacrifice for sin was satisfied, and, 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 uh, or satisfied the wrath of God, that God accepted His sacrifice on our behalf. And so he prays, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus knew His death and resurrection would showcase or put on display all of God's glorious attributes, his wisdom, his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his wrath, his power, his compassion, his goodness and faithfulness. Man, they they are all on display at the cross. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, summarizes this very well. He said, the wisdom of God, talking about the cross, the, the plan of salvation, the wisdom of God, has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. You see it all in the, in the, in the crucifixion and the resurrection. J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on the Gospel of John here, he, he talks about how the crucifixion, cru- crucifixion brought glory to the Father and brought glory to the Son. He says it brought glory to the Father and that it glorified His wisdom His faithfulness, His holiness and love, it showed Him wise in providing a plan whereby He could be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. It showed Him faithful in keeping His promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. It showed Him holy in requiring His law's demands to be satisfied by our great substitute. It showed Him loving in providing such a mediator, such a redeemer and such a friend for sinful man as His co-eternal Son. He goes on, Ryle says, the crucifixion also brought glory to the Son. It glorified His compassion, His patience, and His power. It showed Him most compassionate in dying for us, suffering in our stead, allowing Himself to be counted sin and a curse for us, and buying our redemption with the price of His own blood. It showed Him most patient in not dying the common death of most men, but in willingly submitting to such pains and unknown agonies as no mind can conceive when with a word he could have summoned his father's angels and been set free. It showed him most powerful in bearing the weight of all transgressions of the world and vanquishing Satan and despoiling him of his prey. I love J.C. Ryle. Deep thinker, deep man of godly man. But the point is this, the crucifixion and the resurrection brought both the Father and the Son great glory. Why? 
because it was the means that they had ordained before time began to provide salvation and eternal life to a special group of people that God sovereignly selected to be the son's bride. Now we're getting deep. Notice verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. As a result of Christ's work of redemption that he accomplished on the cross, the Father gave the Son the authority over all mankind, but specifically the the authority to save all those that God had given him, the elect. Notice what he says there in verse 2, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Five times in this prayer, Jesus referred to his own as those the Father had given him. Notice verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I didn't ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. Beloved, this is an absolutely profound truth. Do you realize what Jesus was saying there? That you and I are a precious gift from God the Father to the Son. We are God's love gift to Jesus. I mean, normally we think about Jesus being God's love gift to us. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but ever last night. But here, this is totally flipped around, that we are God's gift of love to his son. This is not the first time we've heard this. Back in John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus hinted at this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And then that classic passage in John 10 about believers eternal security. John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me and he is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are what? One. Now let me try to make this as understandable as possible from a human perspective okay from on a horizontal level just we're here on planet earth okay from a human perspective we receive the gift of eternal life when we repent of our sin and we place our faith in christ right from a human perspective that's how we receive eternal life is when we repent of our sin and we receive jesus by faith 
But from a divine perspective, from God's perspective, from heaven's viewpoint, we were chosen by the Father in eternity past and gifted to the Son. And the Father then sent the Son to earth to secure our salvation by dying in our place on the cross. And the moment we repent and believe, He then grants us eternal life. And again, here we're faced with this glorious doctrine of election, which is a great mystery that our minds cannot fully grasp or explain, but we must accept by faith. But but notice the the positive. This is not a a scary uh, doctrine. This is not an evil doctrine. This is not a a, a bad thing. This is a glorious thing. It's all about the love, God's sovereign love for you. Why would God choose you? Why would God choose me to give as a gift to his son? I don't know. I don't know why he would choose me, and I definitely don't know why he'd choose you. No, just kidding. <laughs> the point is, we, we don't know, but, it, but it, we need to be caught up in wonder and love and awe and praise and go, wow, that is an amazing mystery, and I can't believe that, that in eternity past, they were talking about me. My name came up. Why me? No, not, well, that's just not fair. Not my God. I'm just, I don't have time to argue about it. I'm just, I'm in awe. What's there to argue about? If anything, it should just humble us. Humble us. And, and cause great love and gratitude to, to come up out of our lives and say, Lord, I, I just want to serve you. I just want to love you. I, I want to honor you for your great gift that I'm a part of to your son. Verse 3, classic verse in the Gospel of John, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Love that verse. That, that verse was burned into my mind as a, as a youngster uh, growing up because every summer I went to New England Keswick. It was a summer camp in the Berkshire Mountains in Massachusetts, and, and that was their theme verse. And you, as, you drove into the, as you drove into the driveway of that camp, their big sign was there, New England Keswick, and this verse was on that sign. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And here, again, is a very simple, basic definition or explanation of how eternal life is obtained. We, we know this is a theme of, of John's writings. John uh, 3.15, right, talks about this, 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 as the Son of Man is lifted up as the snake uh, in the wilderness, that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. John said the reason why he wrote this, John chapter 20, verse 31, was that you might have eternal life. In his letter that he wrote, 1 John, uh, this is a theme throughout all of John's writings, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John 73, this is eternal life, that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That word know, 
is the word gnosis in the Greek, which, which was the word they would use for experiential knowledge. Uh, in fact, this was the word that's often used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and, and it was also used sometimes in the Greek New Testament to describe the intimacy of, of sexual intercourse between a husband and wife. That, that's the word, gnosis. Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew his knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Uh, it says in Matthew one twenty five, Jesus did not know, or excuse me, Joseph did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, talking about keeping Mary a virgin until she gave birth to Christ. In other words, Jesus was describing here when he said that you might know, that they might know you, God, the only true God, he was describing an intimate, personal relationship with God the Father as, to, as opposed to some distant, impersonal relationship that was purely informational. You realize that it's possible to know a bunch of information about someone and not actually know them. I mean, we know a lot about famous people, famous athletes, famous movie stars, and and it almost makes us feel like we really know them, but guess what? We don't. You could list off, you could tell me a whole lot about people uh, that you've never met before, and I might think, wow, you really know this person, but guess what? You've never met them personally. You don't know them personally, And, and, and what's worse, they don't know you. The point is this, that it's possible to know a lot of information about God and not really know Him. And Him not know you. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23, depart from me, I never what? Knew you. You say you know me, but I don't know you. Who are you? I say that because you may be here this morning and you're, you're a very religious person and you wouldn't miss a Sunday at church uh, for anything. You, you believe there's a God. You, you feel like you have some kind of relationship with him because you pray and, and you do sorts of good things. And, 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 but, but, but the question is, are you sure that you are worshiping the one and only true God as opposed to some false God that, that, that you've read about or you've been told about or that you've made up in your own imagination? There's only one true God, and the only way to have a personal relationship with the only true God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said this already in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also from now on. Know Him, now on you know Him and have seen Him. In other words, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know my Dad. 1 Timothy 2.5, for, no, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is, there's not a lot of gods. There's not a lot of ways to get to God. There's only one God and one way to get to him, and that's through Jesus Christ. Now, some would say, well, look, Jesus mentioned himself separately that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So... Apparently, he, he, he knew that he was not the same as God. He, he's not the one true God. Well, the fact that their names are mentioned together as the joint source of salvation here is further proof that they are equal, that they are one. And let me just say this about eternal life, that eternal life 
is not so much a quantity of life, but a quality of life. In other words, eternal life is not something that starts when you die. The moment you die and you start, you know, that's when I enjoy eternal life. No, guess what? It's a quality of life that you enjoy right now. If you're in Christ, you are enjoying the life of the eternal God in you right now. That's profound. It's a quality of life. And it starts the moment that you believe. D.A. Carson said it this way, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as knowledge of the everlasting one. That's eternal life. Quickly, verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. In other words, he he was just speaking about the perfect life that he had already lived, but also of the painful death that he was about to die as if he already had died. He's talking about it as if it's already a done done deal. And then look at verse 5. I love this. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, last time I checked, the Bible says that God doesn't share his glory with anybody. You remember that? You know that? So this would be an audacious request like what Satan desired in eternity past to be like God. And what did God say? I don't share my glory with anybody. And he kicked him out of heaven. But that's not how he responded to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was one with the Father. He was God. And you can share glory within the Trinity. Jesus was simply asking the Father to receive him back into heaven and restore to him the glory that he originally shared with the Father before he laid it aside to become a man. And when the second member of the Trinity... The Son willingly submitted to the incarnation. He shrouded His glory, if you will, in human flesh. He took on human limitations and He refrained from independently using His divine attributes without His Father's permission. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is the, the classic text in Scripture about the kenosis or the, the Christ coming and laying aside Uh, emptying himself, if you will. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But let's keep reading. For this reason also God highly, what? Exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, don't miss this last phrase, to the glory of who? God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. What did Jesus pray in in John 17, 5? Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The Father granted his son's request and exalted him to the place that he enjoyed alongside him before the world began. And exactly as Jesus prayed, the Father 
was glorified by glorifying His Son. God the Father got glory from exalting His Son. John Stott, who's a great expositor of God's Word, he said this, In this final request, Jesus' vision sweeps on beyond the seething waters of His passion, His death on the cross, to embrace the bright shore which beckons Him on the further side of the river, i.e. heaven, like a champion who shrugs off the vain efforts of his enemies to detain him as he moves upon his triumphant way. So Jesus marches into the dark valley of pain and humiliation with eyes upon the glory which the Father holds out to him beyond the sufferings of death. That's what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said, Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We've come full circle, haven't we? We're we're right back where we started from, that there is a glorified man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, in heaven, who serves as our advocate, our intercessor. One of the most popular movies that has come out this year is American Sniper. I've not had the opportunity to see it yet, but I did see the trailer. And if you saw that, you know that it ends with this emotional scene where Navy SEAL Chris Kyle is talking to his wife on the satellite phone in the middle of a raging firefight, and he, he tearfully says to her, I'm ready. I'm ready to come home. I think that's essentially the scene that we have here in John 17. That Jesus was telling the Father that he's ready to come home. Well, he's home now. And you know what he's doing? He's praying that you and I would make it home as soon as possible. So we could see him in all of his glory and live together with him forever. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me would be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Father, this is far beyond our human comprehension to take in There's so much here to absorb, and we just ask that your Spirit would help us, that you would um, give us insight and understanding, and and Lord, that you would help us to make application of these, these truths. Surely, truths as profound, as great, as magnificent should have a huge impact on our lives, the way, the way, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, the way we feel the way we interact with one another, the way we interact with the world. This has got to change who we are as Christians. And so what do you, you accomplish your work for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.